Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The fourth Sunday in Advent, John 1, 19-28. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Amen. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, I believed, even when I spoke, is the way David speaks in Psalm 116, verse 10. Saying this, he declares that since he has faith, he must speak of it. The prophet Jeremiah says something similar. He relates that he had to prophesy misfortune to the apostate nation of Israel, and because he reaped nothing but the most bitter scorn and mockery for prophesying this, he had intended to be completely silent. He adds, There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Jeremiah 20. From both of these examples, we see that true faith is a flame kindled in the heart of man by God himself. Faith, like a hemmed-in fire, burst into conflagration, it breaks forth in ardent confession. History proves that this is actually true. Whenever Christian faith reached greater than average heights, Christians became bold confessors. How zealously the apostles availed of themselves every opportunity to express what lived in their hearts. Though Paul was in chains, we hear him joyfully confessing Christ crucified even before the governors Felix and Festus, before King Agrippa and his queen. We see the apostles Peter and John standing unafraid before the Sanhedrin at Jerusalem saying, Rulers of the people and elders, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Acts 4. And when they were threatened never to speak to man of this name again, they answered with joyful shining eyes, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We find such zealous confession among Christians during the first three centuries. In those times, death at the stake, at the blood-stained sword, at the threatening jaws of lions, yes, at even the most horrible pain of torture, could not hinder staunch Christians from confessing even before the cruelest ruler, we are Christians, with their confession of faith. 
even weak women and delicate maidens, yes, children, fearlessly and unshakably resisted all the threats of the mighty. What happened when, 300 years ago, the gospel again poured the spirit of faith upon thousands of thousands of hearts? Lo, confession soon re-echoed from thousands upon thousands of lips. Though the Roman bishop might angrily excommunicate the evangelical Christians, though the Kaiser might pronounce the fearful ban of empire, through the, though the confession, I am a Lutheran con- Christian, might be fraught with danger to life and body, he whose heart was full could not remain silent. I believed, even when I spoke, was true also in those days. If we compare our times with these, must we not exclaim, Alas! Where is that wonderful golden age of faithful confessors? Is not Christ reviled these days, rather than confessed by most of the very ones who wish to call themselves Christians? Do not most so-called Christian preachers deny that Christ is true God and the Redeemer? Of course, a great glorious awakening to faith took place among the Germans a few years ago. But where is the frank confession of the whole truth? Do they not claim that every faith is equally good? Do they not call him a proud, haughty person who wishes to confess, God has permitted me to find the truth in comparison to which all else is error? Yes, they say, you should not deny Christ. But why do you want to reject others who do not believe exactly like you do? My friends, if they only knew what it means to deny Christ, they would not speak like that. Alas, Christ is more often denied than one suspects. Permit me, therefore, to speak to you today on what it really means to deny Christ. John 1, 19-28 And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, They had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So far our text. In the gospel we just read, we are told how John the Baptist was greatly tempted to deny Christ. But we read, he confessed and did not deny. This prompts me to speak to you today on denying Christ. I will show you in which way one can deny Christ and why one should allow nothing to move him to deny Christ. We pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sakes made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. Forgive us when we, perhaps unknowingly, have denied you, and help us in these last 
calamitous times to remain in the true faith and in a joyful confession of your pure gospel until our death. Awaken us also today to such a confession through the preaching of your holy word, for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Amen. To know how to confess Christ means one must know how one can deny him. For the opposite of confession is denial. It is impossible to go a middle road to remain absolutely neutral. What Christ says applies here. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Matthew 12. In today's text, John the Baptist is presented as an example of a faithful witness and confessor. John the Baptist spent his youth in the Judean wilderness, dressed in a rough garment of camel's hair. He, with great self-denial, lived simply on nothing but locusts and wild honey. He did so not to earn merit, but to attract the attention of the people. And so it happened. Through his unusual appearance, John soon drew the attention of the whole nation. When he finally entered manhood and began to preach repentance, to announce the nearness of the long-awaited messianic kingdom, and to baptize those who believed his preaching, almost all people thought that John himself was the promised Messiah. Or perhaps he was Elijah, whom they supposed would reappear in the days of the Messiah. Or perhaps he was a great prophet, who, according to the popular delusion, would appear with the Messiah. John's authority with the people grew every day. Even the highest authority felt compelled to respect John. It dispatched a distinguished delegation of priests and Levites with the question, Who are you? Had John answered, I am the Christ, the promised Messiah, without a doubt the excited people would have enthusiastically sworn allegiance to him as their long-awaited deliverer and king. And had John then placed himself at the head of the nation, no government would have been able to stem the tide of the revolt. As it seems, the delegation expected no other answer. But what did John say? We read, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Saying this, John withstood the first temptation to the worst and grossest denial of Christ. But the delegation asked him more, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. They continued to ask, Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Many might be surprised that John answered these questions with a no. According to Christ's own words, was not John that Elijah who should precede the Messiah? Didn't Christ call him a prophet? Yes, the greatest of all prophets. In a certain sense, yes. And yet he denies both. We see from John's conduct how careful one must be in confessing one's faith. The Jews supposed that John was really that Elijah who had lived a long time ago. But John was called Elijah only because he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He answered his questioners in the sense in which they asked, not dishonestly misconstruing their questions. The same was true in regard to the question whether he was that prophet. In the sense in which he was asked, certainly was not that prophet. And so he answered with a decisive no. In his confession, he wished to make it impossible for them to draw any false conclusion. Yet the delegation continues and says, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, 
I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, we see from his answer how earnestly John thought, so that he answered in such a way that he did not deny even in those truths that must be offensive to the delegation. John not only said that he was the herald, the forerunner of the Messiah, but that he was there to prepare hearts for the Messiah through the preaching of repentance. The priests and Levites might have listened to this in anger. They did not believe that the kingdom of the Messiah was an invisible kingdom into which one could enter only by repentance, much less that they needed repentance to receive the Messiah. The previous friendliness of the delegation, which fancied itself holy, now turned into threatening seriousness. They finally said, Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Joyfully seizing the opportunity given him, John gave the correct clear testimony that that despised Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Messiah, and that he was one of the subjects of his kingdom. He answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. From this wonderful example of a most faithful confessor, we can learn to know how one can deny Christ. Just think, if John had answered the question, who are you, with, I am the very Christ whom the people think I am, he would have grossly and clearly denied Christ. Today, those who declare that Jesus is merely a man, though an outstanding and wise one, are guilty of gross denial. They deny that he is the Savior of all men foretold by the prophets, true God and true man in one person. They deny that he died on the cross to pay the debt of sin. Therefore, they also deny that one is righteous before God and saved by faith in him. In our day, the number of such deniers in churches, in the schools, and even among the people, is legion. To these gross deniers of Christ belong also those who confess Christ with their mouth, but by a life in open sin show that they want to have nothing to do with Christ. Their confession without faith is no confession, but the clanging of iron and the clinking of a tinkling cymbal. The example of John shows us still more. When he was asked, Are you Elijah or the prophet? John felt obliged to answer with a no, in order not to be guilty of the error that the Jews associated and expressed with this question. We learn this. Even he denied Christ, who denies any truth of the gospel, though it seem ever so unimportant, and helps to confirm any error, though it seems ever so harmless. How important this is for our day. Not a few suppose that they are faithful confessors because they have not denied that Christ is the Son of God and Savior of the world. But from the example of John, we see that this is by no means enough for a true confession. One must confess everything that Christ said. For example, whoever wishes to confess that Christ is the Son of God, but either from pride in his reason or fear of the world, denies that there is a devil, or that the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, is God's word, or that a person is reborn through holy baptism, or that the body and blood of Jesus Christ are truly present in the Holy Supper, and that all communicants receive it, and the like. I say, whoever denies one of these truths, 
and though it seems most insignificant, denies Christ himself and his word. He make us, makes a liar out of Christ. But more, as we have seen, John was very definite in his confession. Therefore, whoever confesses the truth, but in order to evade the mockery of his foes, confesses in such a way that he can point out the truth, but that his enemies can also interpret the confession in their favor. Whoever does not diligently make his confession so clear that even his foes know exactly what he really believes, in the eyes of God, such a confession is nothing else than a clear-cut denial. Furthermore, we find that John did not suppress that truth which he knew would offend his questioners and arouse their anger. It was the truth that he was come to preach to all, make great the way of the Lord. He was to preach that by nature all are unable to receive the Messiah. He was to hold before all their sins, to show all their unrighteousness, and to call all to repentance. From this we see that Christ can even be denied by suppressing the truth. Whoever confesses many things, but in order to keep the friendship of the world, suppresses that truth, which he knows the world hates, or whoever suppresses the confession of a truth because he knows that peace and unity with the heterodox will be disturbed, considers the friendship of the world and peace with men more important than Christ and his truth. He also denies his Lord. He belongs to that wretched group of Jewish rulers of whom we read, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from John. John 12. Finally, we heard that when John was asked for the reason of and authority for his baptism, he used this opportunity to confess his oneness with Christ. We see that all those deny Christ who deny his kingdom on earth, his true church. How many there are in our day who deny Christ, who do not suppose that they do. For are they who wish to be known as sincere Christians honestly concerned, not merely in being members of any church, but of the true church of Jesus Christ? Do not many nominal and also true believers join a church in which they clearly recognize that truth and error is tolerated as having equal rights? Are not many true believers ashamed these days to join the little flock of Orthodox who have at all times remained with the simple words of Christ and whom Christ calls his true disciples. Alas, in these last times it has come to the point that the church is divided into many factions, and even those who earnestly wish to be his own unknowingly deny him. Next, let us consider why no one should consciously permit himself to deny his Lord. If ever there was a situation in which a person had reason to deny his faith, John the Baptist must have been it. The most distinguished of the country questioned him. Had he wanted to deny Christ, he could expect that he would be placed on the Jewish throne. If he, on the other hand, had not wanted to deny Christ, he foresaw nothing but hatred, persecution, prison, and finally a violent death. Yes, since all the Jews had such great confidence in him, he could have thought that if he would at first somewhat conceal the truth, 
He would be able to save even more souls than if he would bluntly disavow their proposal. But what did John do? Neither enticements nor threats, neither pleasure nor grief, neither honor nor shame, neither life nor death, neither hope nor fear, neither good nor evil could move him to deny his Lord and Master by double talk or silence. And why? He clung to God's command to be Christ's herald, the voice in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Love to his Savior and his poor misguided brethren drove him on. Finally, God's earnest threat discouraged him from subtracting or adding anything to his word. Whoever rejects the Lord's word would in turn find himself rejected. There you have the reasons why we should let nothing move us to deny Christ knowingly. If we wish to be Christians, we have the earnest call to be Christ's heralds, to glorify his name in word and deed, yes, with our whole life. The second commandment forbids taking Christ's name in vain. That happens every time we deny him. Whenever we pray the second petition, we pray for God's assistance to confess Christ before the world. When we were baptized, we permitted ourselves to be drafted into Christ's army under his banner in battle for his honor. Whenever we deny Christ, we transgress God's holy command. We jeer at our own Lord's prayer. We break our baptismal covenant. We forsake the host of believing confessors who stand under Christ's cross. We become faithless deserters to the camp of the enemy, the world, and Satan. Though our reason or heart may recommend the denial of a truth under a good pretext, we must, as dear as God's favor and our salvation is, always consider God's command and our holy oath more important. Even if we had not promised God, and God had not commanded us, the love and thanks we owe Christ should move us not to deny him under any circumstance or for any consideration. Do we not consider it most shameful when a person is ashamed of his faithful friend and denies him behind his back? How much more shameful must we consider denying our best friend in heaven and on earth? He who loved us from eternity, who for our sakes gave us life, yes, left heaven and his glory, who painfully redeemed us from death and hell through a life full of disgrace, suffering, and finally through the shedding of his blood. Deny him who, when our salvation was at stake, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, though he knew that he would be scourged, mocked, spit upon, crowned with thorns, and finally nailed to a cross. What little thanks for this love is our confession that brings such little disgrace. And do we, do not, and do we not owe it to our fellow redeemed not to deny Christ and his truth? Does not Christ say, the truth will set you free? Do we not owe it to our neighbor to confess the complete truth? Does not our heart horribly deceive us when we suppose that we can, by denying the truth, love our neighbor, since only the truth can truly make him free and save him? Finally, Christ has not only given the wonderful promise, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But he has also added the frightful threat, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10.
Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Luke 9. What good does it do us if we, by denying Christ, should gain the goodwill of all men, the wealth of the whole world, yes, the entire universe? We would in death lose all this, and after our death, we would learn that we had gambled away our souls and salvation, only to be eternally lost. Woe, eternal woe, to even a Peter, if with bitter tears of repentance he had not heartily bewailed his denial. Even he would have been eternally lost. On the other hand, what do we lose if we, like John the Baptist, must shed our blood because we do not want to deny Christ by even one word. Then, in place of temporal life, we will inherit eternal life. In place of temporal disgrace, eternal honor. For temporal pain, eternal joy and salvation. Let Jesus, above all, have our hearts by faith. Not only our heart, but also our mouth. Yes, everything which we are and have. If already here, he is ours by faith. If we also confess him, in such a little faith, we will also receive the end of faith, eternal life. Then Christ will there embrace us and be all ours also to see and enjoy. For the apostle testifies to us through the Holy Spirit. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Romans 10. May Jesus Christ himself, the author and finisher of our faith, Help us for the sake of making a good confession. Amen and amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri. CPH.org. We thank you for tuning in and we pray that God's word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life.